and Katie Bethelugo is our scripture reader today. So please stand in honor of God's word as she comes. Listen as I read. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty One, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric Freeman, uh, and I serve here as one of the two church planting residents on staff at Sojourn, along with Justin Sluter, who you've seen leading worship for us a lot over the last six months or so. And uh, uh, like Ben said, I, I go a long way. I go a while back here. Uh, I look out and I see a lot of faces I know. I see, uh, to my own joy, a lot of faces I don't know, which means a lot of the prayers that I was praying 10 years ago, uh, God has answered those prayers that he would bless this church and flourish it and make it grow. Um, but to those of you I, I, I know and I've gone a long way back, uh, it's good to see you again. Um, I, I keep coming back, don't I? <laughs> like, keep showing up. I can't, can't get rid of me, but it's because you guys are my home. You're my family. Uh, you guys raised me in the faith. You affirmed this call to ministry that I've been pursuing and sent me out, and I think I've been trying to do everything I can to just get as close as I can to getting back here, but uh, uh, God has really done some amazing things in your guys' life and in my life and my family. Uh, as you heard, we just welcomed our second child, Josie, into the world a couple weeks ago. If I look tired, I am. <laughs> and my wife is probably sitting at home watching this right now, like saying, oh, you don't even know. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, as Ben said, we're planting the Refuge Church next fall in Cadillac, where Justin and I have uh, both been living and doing ministry for the last several years. Uh, and you guys are a part of that, whether or not you know that yet. Um, you're a part of surrounding us with the love, the prayers, the support that we need to get this thing started. And so if you ever have a question about what we're doing, what our church is going to be all about, uh, Justin and I would love to meet with you and share more about that. We'll have time for more in-depth details probably down the road too. Well, the two passages that were just read for us are, are a favorite to many, including myself. And, uh, and we love pictures like the ones in those passages, don't we? We love imagining what that day in heaven will be like. Uh, these two passages, they give us a glimpse into our future reality, two pictures into what our first moments of the new heaven and new earth will be like. And they're just so good, aren't they? Uh, the largest worship concert ever, the, a delicious feast sitting at the table with our own Savior, Jesus. And I just want you to imagine that day. Close your eyes if you need to picture it with me. You walk into an enormous banquet hall, bigger than anything you've ever seen. You, you can't imagine the tree, how large it would have been to cut the table 
that is, sits before you. And there's your seat. Your name's right there. You take your seat, and you look down the table, and at the head of the table is your own Savior, Jesus. And you make eye contact with him without any fear, without any guilt, without any shame, for your sins and suffering have been done away with once and for all. And in that moment, a joy will well up in your heart that you have never experienced before. We love thinking about that, don't we? But then, you look around, and you notice there's some more people here. The, the table's full. Seated around the banquet table are our people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Jesus doesn't just save you, apparently. He is saving a people, a kingdom, a multitude. And so you look to your right, and there's your mother, or maybe your father, or a child, or another loved one. And isn't it such a comforting thought to know that after everything y'all have been through, there they are, celebrating at your side. And you wonder, who's sitting on your left? You've been hearing him talk. You recognize that voice, but you just can't quite place it. You know you heard it somewhere before. And so you turn your head to the left to see who that voice belongs to, and to your surprise, it's that guy. You know, that guy, the person who you just couldn't stand, the person who thought differently than you, the person who voted differently than you. Yes, I know we're all imperfect, but that guy's imperfections just really got under your skin, didn't they? You know, that guy from church. I sense by that giggle you might know what I'm talking about. Have you ever thought about that? We love imagining heaven as if it will be just me and Jesus. But have you ever noticed that nearly every passage that gives us a clear picture of what the new heaven and new earth will be like, that it always mentions there's a ton of other people there? Have you ever thought about how your most joy-filled day ever will be celebrated side by side with that guy that in this life, in this fallen, imperfect reality that you just couldn't stand. Side by side with another Christian who the only thing holding you two in common was your common identity in Jesus. You know, that sort of perspective that the book of Revelation gives us, that perspective in view of eternity, should change the way that we feel about the church in our present reality, shouldn't it? The knowledge that one day we will all be changed that should change the way that we think about the church today. So as you know, right now, we're in the tail end of a sermon series that is looking at Sojourn Church's doctrinal statement. And as you can probably guess, the topic for today is the church, God's new people. Um, now, we're going to mostly be talking today about the capital C church, the universal church. Anyone who belongs to Jesus uh, is united to him no matter what country you're from, no matter how much or how little you have in common. If you profess Christ as your Savior, you are part of that capital C church. We're also going to address some stuff with lowercase churches as well, local churches like this one or any other number of churches in town. Uh, but for the most part, we're looking at the capital C church. And our doctrinal statement, I believe it might be printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Our doctrinal statement says this about God's new people, the church. We believe that God's new covenant people have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. They're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. 
This universal church is manifest in local churches of which Christ is the only head. Thus, each local church is, in fact, the church, the household of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the body of Christ, the apple of his eye, graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. The church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another and for the world. Now, crucially, this gospel we cherish has both personal and corporate dimensions, neither of which may be properly overlooked. Christ Jesus is our peace. He has not only brought about peace with God, but also peace with alienated peoples. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The church now serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors rather than self-focus. The church is the corporate dwelling place of God's spirit and the continuing witness to God and the word and the world. Now, I, I did a little outline of that statement as I was preparing for the sermon and I found at least 20 unique points, each worthy of their own sermon. So, see how this goes. Uh, Rather than try to hit every point in detail, what I want to do for this time this morning is to um, anticipate some of the questions that the writers of this doctrinal statement were asking and trying to answer, and to try to put ourselves in their shoes and go along with them along that journey of what are those questions we're asking, where in Scripture are we turning to for the answers, what are those answers, and then what are some of the implications and applications of the answers that we find. So hopefully you feel uh, we're journeying through this doctrinal statement this morning. Now, when we approach a statement like this, I I, I don't think our hang-up is so much about what the church is, but rather, if we're being honest, how we feel about that church described there. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or on the fence or still exploring, it seems like all of us have grown a lot more comfortable recently saying, yeah, I have a few problems with the church. I have a few grievances. A few years ago, um, the group Barna did a survey to learn more about how people felt about the church, and what they discovered was that there was this whole new demographic category that didn't really exist before. This whole new category, professing Christians and spiritually-minded people uh, who, who love Jesus, but not so much the church. They love Jesus, but not the church. They actually had to create a whole new category for people like this because it was so large and trending upwards so quickly. And in this survey, uh, they found that this category of people who love the church, but not, or who love Jesus, but not the church, they found that their beliefs, their doctrine, what they believe about God, about salvation, about scripture, etc., what they believed was really no different than the most dedicated evangelical church attenders. This group is not wishy-washy on what they believe, on doctrine. They love God. They love the gospel. They love Jesus. But they just have a lot of problems with the church. Now, it wasn't always like this. So how do we get to this moment in time? Um, I I had a private conversation with a guy named Zach Eswine, who's a pastor in St. Louis and a professor at Covenant Seminary, where I attended. 
And he told me once that um, each generation is defined by a question that they ask of their world in their time. They're defined by this one question. And that question has a unique relationship to how that generation thinks about the church. And so those who grew up and lived during like World War II, they were driven by this strong sense of purpose and truth. They knew that there was good in the world and it was worth fighting for. And so the question of their generation was, what is my duty? What is my duty? Now you can imagine how that defining question of the generation affected their feelings toward church life, right? Their primary concerns were about their responsibilities to support and serve the church, membership, regular attendance, giving, volunteering, service, all of these things. Uh, With so much focus on duty, sometimes relationship and deep connection got overlooked. Perhaps it felt rigid and legalistic at times. Now, the baby boomer generation grew up in a world where um, all of the values that their parents and grandparents had now felt threatened by new wars, different wars, controversy, corruption. And it, it, you can sympathize there, right? It's hard to feel a, that same sense of duty when you don't really know what's true anymore or who to trust, which is why the baby boomers are defined by the question, what is true? So we've moved from what is my duty to what is true. And so this generation was always questioning the status quo, always searching for uh, alternatives to the truth that they were raised with. And, and for baby boomers who were raised in the church and even stayed in the church, um, they may not have felt a temptation to leave, but they certainly questioned its beliefs and its practices in a way that we hadn't really seen in a long time. And so you can imagine how that impacted the next generation of Gen Xers uh, who looked around and felt like, wait, we're asking what is true? That's a shaky foundation to build my faith on. And so if baby boomers were asking what is true, Gen Xers were asking more of a nihilistic, uh, Pontius Pilate type of question, what is truth? What is true to what is truth? And there's a huge difference in those couple of letters. You know, that question opened the doors for Gen Xers to leave the church in droves like we have never seen before. And for those who stayed in the church or for those who returned to the church after walking away, they didn't go back to maybe churches called First Baptist Church of whatever or Second Presbyterian Church. They tended to go to churches that did things a little differently, non-traditionally. I-Church, Warehouse 316, I don't know. Something very trendy, different. Now, Millennials, my generation, we inherited that, and we are the first unchurched generation. We didn't really like the bleakness of our parents' and grandparents' approaches to truth, and so we tried to resurrect that search for truth, asking if we were, what is true, what is truth? Millennials now ask, what is my truth? Don't we? Society during this time grew incredibly individualistic, Church itself was really just an afterthought because we started to find church as whatever or wherever we wanted it to be. In my living room, with my best friends, uh, with a small group, or on a solo journey into nature where it's just me and God. You know, the pursuit of God and truth was embraced again by millennials. 
but often at the expense of relationship to God's people. Because at the end of the day, isn't it just all about me and Jesus? And then this latest generation, Gen Z, they have found the answer to the millennial question, what is my truth? Gen Z has found that truth and they are passionate about it. They believe it fiercely. It's a generation actually very similar to those who grew up in the world wars. They have a profound sense of morality, of justice, of truth, and duty. And again, they are asking, what is my duty? We've come full circle in less than 100 years, but in the process, do you know what has been lost? A love for the church. There are a lot of reasons for that. Now, uh, in this room, we have just about all those generations and all of those generational questions represented. And it might not feel like those are the questions that you might be asking or the answers that you have arrived at, but let me ask you, does a fish know that it's wet? Are you aware of the air that you're breathing in right now? These are important realities to acknowledge as we approach questions about the church because our perspectives are influenced by a whole lot more than what we often admit. There are a lot of us who, if we're being honest, we find ourselves in that new demographic of people who love Jesus, but maybe not so much the church. We really struggle to love the church, and for a lot of reasons— And some of those reasons are understandable. Hear me on that. The church isn't perfect, right? A lot of us don't like the church because in our minds, it's too religious, too stuffy, too inward focused, too much focus on duty and not enough focus on the heart of worship and true spiritual connection. And if that's you, you probably pessimistically uh, imagine church as a building or an institution that coldly demands your service. And hear from me, a church that is saturated with that sort of legalistic mindset and stone-hearted duty, that's not the answer. You have every right to recoil from that. But also hear me on this, swinging to the opposite side of the spectrum doesn't solve the problem. The last two or three generations of church culture have been defined more by consumerism, by hyper-individualism, the mindset that the church solely exists to serve me and my preferences and my wants. And that is not the answer either. So on one side, we have a church that is all duty and it's inward-focused. And on the other side, we have a church that is all personal preference and, ironically, also inward-focused. Either side heirs to it's all about me, my agenda, where it's my corporate agenda or my personal agenda. Let me tell you, over the last year especially, Our definition of what the church is has been challenged in such a unique way, hasn't it? You know, if your understanding of church is solely defined by what happens for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, COVID and lockdowns shook you, didn't it? It challenged you. It threatened you. And if your definition of church is just a small, harmonious community group of like-minded people, how did it feel when your best friend in that group voted differently than you 
or disagreed with you about a contentious topic. Hold on a second. I thought this was shalom. I thought this was peaceful. This was my church. What happened here? And if your idea of church were these long meditation journeys out into nature, how did it feel when you spent the last year locked up in your house, working from a laptop, sitting on your bed in sweatpants that you really, really need to wash soon? Listen, worship services, community groups, meditations in nature, these are all wonderful things. These are all activities of the church. But that's not what the church is. The church is something much more than that. And so, in so many ways, our understanding of church is being challenged right now. And legalism and consumerism, duty and hyper-individualism, neither of these sides of extremes offer us an attractive picture of the church. And so we're sat here asking ourselves, do we really need it? Do we really need the church? Can I just be a Christian and just ignore the rest of the people sitting at this table? Is that an option? Why can't it just be me and Jesus? Well, maybe the solution isn't to swing from uh, one bad definition of church to another. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's something in God's design for the church that we're missing out on. So it's not enough for us to ask the question if we really need the church until we've asked the question, how does God himself feel about the church? Uh, when, When we look at God's commandments, um, the ordinances and institutions that he has given us. It's always a good Bible study practice to, to go back to the beginning in Scripture and to see, do we, do we find any evidences of these values that God has ingrained in these laws and institutions? Do we find those in his created order all the way in the beginning? And so, for example, we look at some of the Ten Commandments. Is there any evidence that there is only one true God and that he alone is worthy of our worship? Yeah. Uh, Do we see evidence that life is extremely valuable to God and worthy of protection? Yeah. Uh, Do we see evidence that contentment and enjoyment of what God has given us is a good thing? Yes, all of that. It's ingrained in the fabric of creation. And so what about the church? Do we see a foretaste of the church in God's original design? So what we see in the beginning is that God designed humanity for relationship, not just a legalistic relationship. It's not all about duty and responsibility. Uh, the Westminster Catechism, I love the way that they put it. They say our chief, or our purpose, I should say, our purpose in life is to glorify God. Yeah, we probably could have filled in that blank. Our purpose is to glorify God, but also to enjoy him forever. Or maybe... Maybe the musician Sleeping at Last puts it better. Um, We were made to fall in love every time we open our eyes. We were made, we were created to fall in love with God every time we open our eyes. You see, God's design is not just about duty or heartless legalistic obedience. it's It's about deep enjoyment and love for God. So it's more than duty. But it's also a whole lot more than individualism too. It's more than just me and Jesus because relationship is at the core of everything he has done. It's written all over the pages. 
You might remember earlier in our sermon series, we talked a lot about this. A relationship is in the essence of God himself, one God, three persons. It's in the essence of our creation that we were made in God's image for relationship with him. And it's made with each other too. Have you ever asked, why, did God, why didn't God just stop creating people when he created Adam? If it was good, why didn't he just stop? Why did he create Eve? God says himself, it is not good for man to be alone. He was made for relationship. God's design for life is not declared very good until he has made for himself not just one person, not just you, but a people. A multitude of people who belong to him is the vision of very good that God had in mind. And our doctrinal statement sums it up perfectly. It says this, that the gospel we cherish has both personal, I think that's fairly easy for us to believe, personal dimensions, but also corporate dimensions, neither of which may be properly overlooked. And I think if we're being honest, if we're at risk of overlooking personal or corporate, we probably are more at risk of overlooking the corporate, aren't we? Those are the waters we're swimming in. But when we skim through the pages of the Old Testament, what do we hear? We hear this reverberating echo of God's words to us. Once you were not a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are my people. Once you were not a people, but now you are my people. This isn't singular. It's, now, it's, it's not that now you are God's person. <laughs> But now that you are God's people, it's plural. And I, re- I remember once hearing somebody say that, um, I think it was a college Bible study or something silly. It, this person said that even if you were the only person to ever repent, Jesus would have still come and died for you. And you know, in, in that moment, I was wowed. Like, I, I probably cried because it's such a sweet thing to say, isn't it? It makes Jesus' love seem so great because, oh man, all this love just for me? The problem with that, the problem with that sentiment is it actually lessens God's love and power. It lessens his love and plan. It is, it is yes, totally, God came and died for you, absolutely. Absolutely. But let's multiply that by like a few hundred million, by billions, please. Because that's what Jesus did. The amazing grace of God comes into full display when we see that Jesus died, not just for you, not just for me, but for many. You know, the incarnation, that moment when Jesus stepped down from his heavenly throne, took on flesh, and entered our world. The incarnation was no joke. It was no small decision of God. It's no small thing. Because his will to do this, knowing full well what that cost would be, is unfathomable. Because when he looked down upon that world, it wasn't just looking at my sin, Eric Freeman's sin, and saying, if it's just him, Sure, it's not that, it's just one person I'll die for that. Cost isn't that big. No. When he looked down from heaven upon that world, what did he see? A world completely broken. A world totally caught in sin. A world that is completely hopeless. 
a world that has deviated so far from his design for what he made this to be. We had all fallen so far short of the glory he made us for, and his decision to stare all of that sin and brokenness in the face, the accumulated sin of billions of people throughout history, past, present, and future, and to willingly enter into that world and to take the judgment, to take the wrath upon himself that we deserved, that's that's amazing. That's some love. That is some power. Jesus died for your sins, yeah. Oh, man, but Jesus died for the sins of billions, too. That is amazing. Despite the multitude of sins, Jesus still came to rescue his people. Despite the multitude of hopeless sinners, Jesus still died for us. Despite the multitude of his redeemed children, you and me, who still stumble and fall and falter to obey his will, and even now, Jesus yet stands at the judgment throne, pleading before the Father, declaring on our behalf, once they were not your people, but I've paid the price, and now they are your people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You know, for all our grievances against the church, for all the things that we don't like about it, can we really sit here and say that Jesus feels the same? No. Listen to his own words, a prayer that he prayed in John 17. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Listen to the love in his voice. Holy Father, keep them in your name that they would be one even as we are one. I've given them your word. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. And I don't just ask for these only who are before me now, but also for all of those who will believe in me, that they too may all be one. The glory you have given me, I give to them. I in them and you in me and they, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You know what 1 Corinthians 12 says? We are his body. We are his body. How do you, how do you feel about your body? You want to take care of it? You like it in it? Do you like having parts of it disconnected? <laughs> no. How do you think Jesus feels when he sees division and disconnection in his own body? No, Jesus is the head of the church. And as the head, he feels, he sees, he, he is in charge of it all, and he holds it all together, and he loves us, the church, as he would love his own body, as you would love your own body. Our doctrinal statement doesn't exaggerate a thing when he says this, when it says this, that the church is the apple of his eye. I hope that stands out to you. That's not a phrase that normally makes it into doctrinal statements. That's poetry. That's, that's a love letter to your sweetheart. That's how Jesus feels about you, that the church is the apple of his eye. It's graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. And then continues on, Christ Jesus is not only that, he's also our peace. He has not only brought about peace with God, but also peace between alienated peoples. His purpose was to create himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and in one body reconcile 
former enemies to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Once we were not a people. Now you are his people, his church. The things that once divided us are nothing in comparison to the union that we have in Jesus. There is, there is someone in the world right now, imagine this, there's someone in the world right now who you share nothing in common with. You don't look like them. You don't speak the same language. You don't come from the same culture. You don't have the same style of worship or preferences. You don't have the same politics. And by all other earthly, understand, all other earthly standards, you share nothing in common with them. But if you both belong to Christ, you have more in common with that brother or sister than you do with your own family member or loved one who does not belong to Christ. Let that sink in. Loving Jesus should lead us to love the church. It's his body. It's his bride, his beloved. To ask whether or not we need the church suggests that a follower of Jesus even has a choice in the matter. It's not that we need or don't need the church. It's that we are the church. It's who we are, united to one another as much as we are united to Christ. It's our identity. It's our existence. It's our new way of life. And so notice how this concept of being united to the church through Christ, notice how that challenges both sides of the spectrum. Notice how it challenges the legalistic view, a view that might hold service and performance to the church over your head, and your membership to the church is only as good as your attendance record or your times served in the nursery. But it also challenges that consumeristic church too, where you're just a number, where, yeah, it might be a more comfortable experience, but that's all you are. You're just a number in a seat. That's it. But the church that Jesus himself designed us for is one that invites our whole selves in, not merely, not merely to serve or to boost attendance numbers. But get this. We're invited in to belong. Don't you want that? Isn't that in you, that longing to belong? Isn't that in your DNA? Isn't that in the deepest parts of your soul, that knowledge that you were made to belong? Christ has given you the church. The deep relational connection that each of us long for is provided by Christ himself in his church. We were made to belong, and only in his church do we find that longing fulfilled. Not perfectly in this life, but ever and ever more graceful as we go. Now listen, I know that as I'm talking, some of you aren't experiencing the joy and the hope that I'm communicating. You're, it's bringing up past hurts, past trauma, past uh, negative experiences that make it really hard for you to trust a church again. Me too. Even as I talk about this, I have stories that have gone on in my own life where I've been hurt by the church, a church. As one who's been through that, let me encourage you with this. Don't let a bad experience with a local church keep you from enjoying the gift that God made you for in the church. One bad food poisoning experience doesn't keep us from going to restaurants forever. A relational fallout doesn't keep us from 
creating new friendships and relationships again. Or it shouldn't. There's something special in the church for us. If we would only allow our hearts to be vulnerable and accept the invitation to dive in, this is the better way that Jesus invites us into. So we are the church. It's not a building. It's not just an institution of professionals who provide services for everybody. It's God's new people. We collectively are the church. And let me ask you, doesn't that make a big difference? Isn't that a perspective change when we go back to all those problems that we were talking about earlier that we see in the church? Because if we see ourselves as part of the church, we are no longer passive critics standing at a distance wishing someone would change something for me. No longer are we withholding our participation in church life until all of our demands and preferences have been met. If we are one with the church as we are one with Christ, then there's only, op- there's only one option. It's for us to be part of the transformation that we want to see here both locally and in the universal church. So how do we transform? How does church get better? How do we start to address all the problems in the church that we talked about earlier? Uh, Tim Keller kind of gets at this point. I think you heard of him before. I think Matt quotes him from time to time. I don't know. He says this, belief that you are accepted by God by sheer grace, all that stuff that we are talking about earlier, Belief in that you're accepted by God by sheer grace is profoundly humbling and transforming. Now, the people in the church who we see as destructive fanatics, all those people who have hurt us, they are not so because they are, or they are, let me reread this. The people in the church who we see as destructive fanatics then are not so because they are too committed to the gospel, but because they are not committed enough. Let me put it in a different term. The problems and failures in the church that we can all identify, that we can all bring to the table and say, yeah, that kind of sucks. Those problems came about because of a compromised commitment to the gospel, not because of a dedicated commitment to the gospel. It was the result of other identities, other values coming in and hijacking the message of Christ for their own purposes. And so when we look out and see the problems in the church, chances are what we're seeing is that the church has prized something above Jesus and his gospel and mixed it in, and that mixture has become toxic. Prizing your ethnic heritage above the gospel, prizing your culture, prizing your politics, prizing your ability to pick and choose whatever you want to believe in God's word and leave everything else out that you don't. Mixing these things into the church, don't dilute the gospel. No, it poisons our witness. It toxifies our witness until it becomes clear that we're not actually about Christ at all. The problems we see in the church is because of a compromised gospel. The solution is to press in deeper and deeper into Christ and his gospel. This is why at Sojourn, week after week, we are so committed to gospel representation, aren't we? In everything that we do, in our worship, in our teaching, that's why we are always seeking to put Christ at the center of everything we say and do. Because only there, we we sang this in Rock of Ages earlier, wash me Savior or I die. That's how serious it is. Wash me Savior or I die. It's life and death. That's what we believe. That's why the gospel is at the center of everything. No ministry trend or program has the power to transform like the gospel does. 
And so we're a gospel-centered church. And without the gospel, we are nothing. Without the gospel, we are no more than just a weird club of spiritually-minded people. Have you ever thought about that? Church is kind of weird. Without the gospel, none of this makes sense. This is really weird. Just look around. Yeah? The gospel has to be true, or else this is just a waste of time. Without the gospel, we are nothing. Only a deeper commitment to Jesus and his gospel produces in us the humility and a love that is so uncommon, so countercultural to this world. And when the gospel is at the center of everything we say and do as a church, that is when the world is able to hear and see our Savior most clearly. That's when our testimony is meaningful. Doctrinal statement says we serve as a sign of God's future new world when we live in service for one another and for our neighbors rather than self-focus. We are living reflections of God's goodness. The Apostle Peter says the same thing when he wrote his first letter, that Jesus actually has made us into a kingdom of priests, meaning that God has given us the job of representing him to the world. And this mission that God gives us to be a kingdom of priests, that's why we do this. That's why we plant churches. There is no witness to the transforming power of Jesus quite like a church full of people who used to be arrogant but who have been humbled by the loving grace of God. No testimony like that. There's no testimony like a church full of people who used to be caught in all types of sin but are now pursuing the righteous lives that God has made them for. Have you ever met somebody like that whose life was just radically changed because of Jesus? How powerful is that? There's no testimony quite like a people of ch- uh, uh, quite like a church of full of people who used to tear down but now build up a church full of people who like Christ seek after the interests of others instead of their own. We need churches like that. We need churches planted like that in every city, town and village in the world so that when the world looks at us they get that foretaste. They catch that vision of the life that Christ promises us to come. When he restores the new heaven and earth, seated at the table side by side with former enemies, now brothers and sisters. And isn't that something you want to be a part of? Don't you long for that? I do. One day you and I and all who trust in Jesus for their salvation are going to walk into a giant banquet hall. You're going to smell the most delicious food. You're going to hear some joyous laughter. You're going to hear some amazing stories. You're going to take a seat at a banquet table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that moment, you will be reunited with Jesus, your Savior. But as you look forward to that day, don't forget to look to your right and to look to your left. Don't forget to look around and see who else is there. It's going to be you, Jesus, and the multitude of others throughout history that Jesus has saved from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The call is this, church, May we learn to love and celebrate God's people as God himself loves and celebrate them and live today in the belief and anticipation that Christ is 
and will make his church new. Let's pray. Your word says, Lord, that how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord blesses us with life forevermore. So Jesus, this morning we ask for an extra dose of your grace. Unite our hearts with yours that we may love your people as you do. Make us one with the church. The testimony of our words and actions may clearly reflect who you are and the hope you've given us. Amen.